0: This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinnell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the US government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford, and I'm here with Mark Sinnell. Hello, Mark.
1: Good morning, Carolyn.
0: Good morning. Today is a fun one because
1: we have invited our friend Eric Monterastelli to join us on a crossover episode for this morning's Tech Transforms.
0: Well said. And his podcast is Break Fix. So thanks for being here, Eric. And we're super excited to talk to you today.
2: That's right, folks. And it's not uncommon to see IT branding plastered across the side of race cars in many motorsports disciplines. Names like AWS, CrowdStrike, and SailPoint immediately come to mind. But for application performance monitoring and artificial intelligence, the relationship between technology and racing goes far beyond stickers and sponsorship dollars. So as... Carolyn pointed out this is a crossover episode between Breakfix and Tech Transforms and I'd like to personally thank Mark and Carolyn for having us on their show to explore this idea.
0: Yeah, and like what you just said there Eric, it's a little bit geeked out for me, I'm not going to lie. So let's just get really basic for me and talk about cars and racing first and tell me How you got into cars and racing just
2: in general. I'll keep it brief because I think that could be a whole episode into itself. (laughs) So for your audience, Grand Touring Motorsports was founded in late 2013, officially 2014. And our mantra is to continue to spread motorsports enthusiasm. The idea is that people understand that there's multiple disciplines to racing, and racing is a big part of our world, whether you believe it or not. The chemistry, the science, the technology, the engineering that trickles down into your daily car is incredible. And it all stems from manufacturers using the racetrack as their test center. So think about it from that perspective. Here at GTM, we want to continue to spread that enthusiasm because if we don't, racing will dry up and that advancement in technology ceases to exist. We've been around now almost eight years. We have our own podcast, Break Fix. We talk about all sorts of different things, ranging from these super technical episodes all the way up to advice episodes, like what should I buy and things of that nature. But personally, I got into cars by way of genetics. <laughs> Grandfather to my dad and now to me, and hopefully I get to pass it on to my daughters along the way. And so we've been tied into the racing community for a very long time. And myself included, I have been a high performance driving instructor now for almost a decade. And then before that autocrossing. before that it was a cart racer nationally, you know, things of that nature. So it's unfortunately in the blood, but what I find most interesting about it is that there's a huge intersection between the automotive world and the IT world. And so I also followed in my father's footsteps, who was a mainframe programmer. So I had the IT side. I also had the racing side, but as a younger racer, I was also involved in things like timing and scoring. I went to work for British aerospace where I tried desperately to get in on their helicopter division because I was actually working on engine management systems at another company. So again, data, technology, IT, racing, it's all very intertwined. But as I grew more into Pro-Am racing into time trials and other disciplines, I started to realize how valuable the data that we collect, not just from the cars, from the track and from the motors and all this stuff related to what I was doing in the sim and threat intelligence world and also in the APM and artificial intelligence space. So there's this. Again, huge crossover there, and I want to be able to explore that with you guys.
1: So Eric, it it seems to me that in the 60s and 70s, the things that teams would do to increase their edge was around the mechanics and the infrastructure of the cars. It seems like over the last 20 years, there has been that shift to IT and leveraging technology to give racers an edge on the racetrack. So you're 100% right, Mark. And I'll use an example. Colin Chapman, the
2: founder of Lotus, is infamously known for both pushing the boundary and cheating like crazy. (laughs) Because what he did is he found (laughs) loopholes in the rules where he could take experimental technology and push the boundaries of racing and engineering. So how do you control that? More rules get put into place. You try to squelch that, you penalize people, all these kinds of things. But really what he was doing is he was moving everything forward. So back then in the sixties and seventies, and even still partially in the eighties where you didn't have big data available, it was all trial and error. You know, let's use formula one as an example. You'll see cars back in the seventies with six wheels. You're like, why is that a good idea? Because somebody needed to try. Chaparral was famous for mounting fans on the bottom of the cars to try to absorb them into the pavement, right? It, to create ground effects instead of doing studies in aerodynamics, right? Because so it's the general- cars wouldn't
1: fly off the racetrack. Exactly, right? <laughs> so there's all this
2: trickery and all this, this crazy stuff that they would do, but we've shifted away from that. We've shifted away to raw data to say, what is that tire doing in that corner under load at this pound of pressure? But if we change it by half a pound, what difference does that make? How much more G can we pull in that corner, right? We've gotten to the deeper layers of the science and the engineering to make these cars go faster. And that's why if you look at a Formula One car of today versus of 1960, it's completely different.
1: So to bridge the physical to the digital, cars have sensors, these microchips all embedded throughout the structure of the car to feed that data back.
0: They do, like even on the tires.
1: Oh yeah. No. So,
2: oh yeah, so get this. So starting in about the 1990s, in the advent of something known as OBD1, so now we all run OBD2 or CAN bus, there's actually a port in the car that you can tie a laptop into and pull all sorts of information from all over the vehicle. More and more manufacturers are putting that up on the heads up displays and on the dashboards these days, which is fantastic, it's right there at your fingertips. But starting in the nineties, they needed a way to interface with the engine because they were putting in more and more sensors thanks to electronic and programmable fuel injection, engine management, it's also known as. So there's a sensor for water. There's a sensor for oil. There's a sensor for pressure. There's a sensor for the rotational speed of the motor at the crank and at the cam and all this crazy stuff. It's very nitnoid information. And it's all to keep the engine running at maximum efficiency under multiple conditions. So just because you're tooling down the highway, that computer on board is making corrections in microseconds, if not faster.
0: Wait, it's correcting itself? Yes,
2: it is a self-correcting computer.
1: So So the the electronics we have are just a much more simplified version of that, not corrective.
2: All cars, even your street cars have these self-healing, self-correcting computers. And the way it works is a lot of it is for emissions. A lot of it is for efficiency. A lot of it is for power. So for instance, in the old days, I'll draw a parallel to maybe some of our listeners will understand a carburetor. It's very static. You jetted it a certain way, ran terribly when it was cold and the barometric pressure was wrong and then you had to rejet it and tweak it and get under the hood to get it to purr just perfectly. Now with electronic fuel injection, it takes that into account. It takes into atmospheric pressure, air temperature, elevation, all this kind of stuff. And it makes (laughs) corrections based on where you are, where the pedal is at any given time. Are, Are we talking
0: about AI?
2: We're talking about mechanical AI. My car. yes. Whoa, okay. That's pretty cool, huh?
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm in my mind, I'm drawing all these parallels to what you do for work with the government and how these race cars and cars in general work. That's right. So, and
2: so telemetry used in a race car finds itself on the back of a Humvee, finds itself in a tank, finds itself on an airplane. So weapon systems, navigation systems, all that can be tied back in some ways to the automotive world, including GPS work, because we do use GPS telemetry as well to calculate speed and distance and all sorts of additional telemetry when objects are in motion.
0: Does the government use the data gathered on the racetrack?
2: So I'll put it this way. I've worked on some projects that were tied into engine management on tanks and Humvees. So it is possible. I don't know that I can expand too much further on that. (laughs) But the data collected there is very similar to the data that's collected in your passenger car as well as a race car.
1: That's cool. I'd I'd imagine it's probably more finely tuned for aircraft than for You think land vehicles, I would guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking in the airplane. Yes, because you have to take into consideration
2: yaw and pitch and and elevation and, and all the atmospheric conditions. But that's also true in other disciplines of motorsport. So if I'm talking about Mm -hmm. off-roading, the terrain and the pitch and yaw of the vehicle is extremely important when I'm looking at using sensors to show the articulation of my suspension, right? How much suspension travel do I have? How much rotation per axle am I using? Like, do I need to transfer power from the front wheels to the rear wheels? You see those commercials all the time from Audi and Subaru about how it does all this stuff. A lot of that is computer controlled. It's very much that mechanical AI making... Making those decisions based on the sensors and the telemetry that it's collecting in real time.
1: I imagine in, in the performance racing industry, when you're going at speeds at 200 miles per hour or greater and decisions need to be made in milliseconds, it ups the ante a lot greater. That is very true. I mean, we're not at Mach yeah. 2 or
2: whatever, right. like, like a fighter gym, right. but you're absolutely correct. And in both cases... There's still that common denominator of, what, as we say in our world, the meat behind the steering wheel. There's still an organic computer making those minute by minute or second by second decisions with the, let's say, let's call it augmented reality of that AI in the vehicle, controlling those multitudes of different systems that are helping that person, that pilot, that driver be able to do what they do.
0: You talk about a lot of tech companies plaster their names on the sides of cars, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was a testosterone thing, but you said something. You said there's this intersection between the racing and the tech world. Is it just an advertising ploy or is there more to it?
2: Now, so if you ever speak to any race engineers or if you happen to go to, say, IMSA race, where you can actually get really, really close to the pit boxes, like something like the Rolex 24 hours or the Salem six hours at Watkins Glen or something that. If you can get your eyes inside the booth, you'll see that it looks like a command center. You'd think you were at NASA. It's all screens, all data coming in real time, over wireless, into the booth. Race engineers are analyzing the data, and they're also leveraging platforms like AWS and Azure to run their applications. So they need to be able to get this stuff immediately because what they can do from those, let's say, control booths is also send corrections back to the car. Now, some drivers, let's say Formula One, if you've ever looked at the steering wheel, they got dials and knobs and they can make changes and they're talking back and forth with the pit constantly hey the car's doing this and they're like all right give it a little bit of tweak on this dial and it'll make a change to the suspension as they're driving but there's also other disciplines of racing especially endurance racing where they're watching the cars for longer periods of time and they need to be able to manage them over the course of that race they can send over the air changes to the vehicles
0: Are they correlating the data like in this command center? Do they have a big seam that they're pulling everything in and cross tabbing and data analysis? Or do you have specialists like one's looking at the tires and one's looking at the heat? I don't
2: know what you you, look at. You have (laughs) both. You actually have both. And then you also have on-track telemetry. So you've got folks that are responsible for certain parts of the car. Let's say the tires that are responsible for fueling. I mean, you can get really deep on many different portions of that stack. Let's call it the racing stack there that goes on on race day. On the other side of it, it's also the telemetry from the track. They have people that are just watching the weather that are studying the weather and how the weather conditions, slight changes in temperature of the air are going to change the way the motor performs, like losing upwards of, let's say, 20 horsepower because there's one degree of weather change or rain is on its way, right? we got to make strategic decisions on what tires we're going to use, how long are we going to stay out? We just passed Le Mans a weekend or two ago, and that track is famous for being rain on one side and being completely dry on the other because a full lap is almost nine miles long. So that they have the to one take in almost- four-
0: Versus Ferrari. This is it all I know. About, I, yeah. I love that yeah. movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a lot to take in. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of different, what I call sources of authority that are providing data, just like there would be in an IT ecosystem, right? You've got firewalls, you've got routers, you've got IPSs, Active Directory, you've got storage systems that are providing you with tons of metrics. And you have to have a way to correlate all that together and make sense of it. And if there's a problem, and if you happen to listen to Le Mans two weekends ago, they could pinpoint an issue on the car before even the driver could tell it was about to happen. And they're always talking back and forth. They're like, hey. This is about to go down. You should bring the car in. We want to look at this particular thing. A sensor is telling us that there's an issue. The same is true of it. If you can forecast that, let's say, hey, we've got an IOP degradation here on this particular, you know, SAN server, and it's going to cause this ripple effect. We're going to have to V motion, we're going to have to do this. That's going to cause an outage. Now we're going to have looking at real user monitoring. We're going to have an issue where we're going to have People that are down are going to be stuck in limbo. The same is true on the racetrack. So there's this interesting intersection between these two worlds where racing is this more mechanical application performance monitoring versus what we're used to on the IT side of the house. View a race car as an application. View the track as an ecosystem. Very similar to your data center or to your mission application that you might be working on right now. I think think I've melted (laughs) Carolyn's brain.
1: (laughs) Um, Maybe a little bit. Just a little bit. I, I'm interested to see how you can maybe talk a little bit more about how you apply some of those disciplines from the performance racing side to IT that we see or that we're talking to government customers about. There's
2: always the physical side of racing—the car, machine, the boat, the airplane, whatever it might be. But there's also the driver side. How do you determine a talented driver from another driver? There's also another subcomponent of data. There
1: is that like the end user,
2: absolutely. Lewis Hamilton, eight-time world champion Formula One driver, he was good. He was naturally talented. If they left him where he was, you know, maintaining the status quo, he would have only gotten so much better. So then there's the telemetry of the driver. It coincides the telemetry of the car, but it has to do with, you know, their physical abilities. It has to do with their risk mitigation. It has to do with how consistent they are on track. That's key on track is consistent lap times. Being not a second apart. A second is a light year. You need to be hundreds, if not tens of thousands of a second lap per lap. You need to be that precise. Racing yeah. is a precise sport. So that being said, there's other forms of telemetry that we use to better the drivers and help teach them and help educate them and get them away from the status quo. So I relate that back to continuous monitoring, CI/CD pipeline, all these kinds of things where not only is my driver the end user, but he's also my mission app. And how yeah. do I make my mission app better? How do I make it more efficient?
0: How are you monitoring the driver app? Is the driver hooked up to sensors?
2: Sometimes. Yes. Actually in the longer endurance races, they do have health and status monitors, you know, because they are in the car for long periods of time in a race like Le Mans, there's a minimum of three drivers per team. Sometimes there's four depending and they'll do double stints. They're out there for six hours or they're out there for three hours at a time. That's a lot to take in, right? You have to think health, hydration, nutrition, all that stuff. I mean, there's doctors on staff. Let's, let's take that out of the equation, but also how do I make that guy be consistent for three hours in the middle of night? when he's only running on two hours of sleep. I mean, obviously I could probably inject him periodically. It's like adrenaline. It's like the,
1: think of the endurance of like doing an, an Ironman, but when you're going 200 miles per hour, 220 down a straightaway, you have to be alert. So uh, it does make a difference. I think about the endurance when you sit in a car for eight hours,
2: Yeah, you know? So to go back to your your question and to your point, there's one system, even in my more grassroots world where I'm teaching folks that, you know, might be from the government or they might be from industry or they might be from wherever that, you know, they got this bucket list. Maybe they bought a, a Porsche, you know, they retired or Corvette, and they want to go out and experience the track. Well, how do I make them better? I can teach them how to be safe. I can teach them how to be fast. But if I want them to be perfect and be consistent, I have to use data. It's in my toolbox of things, there's been a go-to product. For a very long time, known as the Aim, it's an Italian product. Uh, they have a whole series: the Aim Solo and the Smarty System, and the, the MXs, and the M and all these different pieces. And what it does is you attach it to the car very simply. It's not something you know I have to tie in and integrate like an octopus into the vehicle. I can throw it up on the dashboard, leveraging internal gyros. It's in, leveraging GPS to determine land speed, rate, G-forces, and all this kind of stuff and show me laps. I can then bring all that telemetry in, put it up on a screen and show a driver, this is the turn you're suffering the most on. It feels good, but it's we're not going fast enough. This is where we need to fix your braking zone. You're off by X amount, You know, lap after lap. We can get in a little deeper. We can get a little closer. The car is telling us this. Even though we're not integrated into the car, we can still make those connections. Now, there's some more advanced tools. There's a system by Garmin now, which you know they're famous for standalone GPS systems for a multitude of applications. They just developed one for racing now and it gives you immediate feedback. It actually uses AI to say that was good. That was bad. Do this, make these changes. It actually has the tracks preloaded in them with some baseline information to give you that feedback. And so a driver can kind of see that out of the corner of their eye or go back and review. I actually happen to be friends with Andrew Rains, who's the owner of Apex Pro, and they actually use ML in their platform that can be attached to the car. And it learns on a turn by turn, lap by lap basis and gives the driver immediate feedback to say, you can go deeper into this corner. You can push harder and all this. And it's learning on the fly. It also has ways to tie into that mechanical AI into the motor, as do the other two products I mentioned, to pull engine data, to pull sensor data. And that's where I'm saying we can bridge the mechanical with the meat behind the steering wheel and make you a better driver using data.
0: Everything you're talking about, it gets me really excited. So what you're doing in your day job for the government, basically, same thing. You're monitoring what's going on or enabling that monitoring, right? With the tools that you use, with the AI tools, with the APM tools to detect before the meat behind the computer. (laughs) Even knows there's something wrong, those tools are going to detect and like send alerts,
2: Exactly. When I talk about APM and artificial intelligence, I actually use a lot of cross-references into the racing world. For example, data logging, we use logs all the time in this world as well, right? It's one of the major sources of authority outside of networking data and host data, etc. So we do data logging as well, right? We're going to pull in all that log data from the system. We're going to look at that at the same time. It helps us make a decision, find out what that root causes to whatever the problem is, mechanical or physical, We also have what we call flight recorders. You see that in airplanes all the time. We do that in the APM space with session replay. I can go back and reconstruct someone's lap. I can tell you what gear they were in, what speed they were at, when they were braking, when they were accelerating, how much G they were pulling in a turn, all this stuff, all through that data by pulling all that sensor data in. So when I talk about APM, I use three terms. I like rules of three. (laughs) It applies to a lot of things in life. I use the terms visibility telemetry and fidelity. Visibility, getting your eyes up, having that situational awareness, understanding what's going on in your ecosystem, getting your arms around all those pieces, all those tools, all those components, those sensors, Telemetry is that raw data that's coming in rather it be the logs, whether it be the network information, engine data, you know, track data, weather data, whatever it is you're bringing in. It's all disparate. It has to be correlated, like you said earlier. And then fidelity. Fidelity is the granularity, the usefulness of that information. And I, I often draw a parallel on one of my slides. I talk about a typical GPS that you'd use in your car versus bracing telemetry. Typical GPS only needs three satellites To quote unquote triangulate on you, but to do an object at high speed, I need a minimum of eight. Usually, it's twelve. By the way, that fidelity that those eight satellites bring in gives me more granularity. I can go from your exit is a hundred meters away to you're traveling at two hundred miles an hour, and at this exact millimeter you turn the wheel and this is where you load it up you know the front right tire so that fidelity is important because as i've always said a database is only as good as the questions that it can answer so what we're trying to do on both sides of the house both apm and the racing world is make data driven decisions that's the important part in all of this how do we make things better well we can't do it like in the 60s and 70s by trial and error we got to do it
1: with data it's the only way you know you could take this conversation That Eric is applying to raising, you could just drop it right into a conversation that you're having with a government application owner or digital experience officer, what have you, because. You have the full stack observability that you want to provide to the customer. You have the end user experience, which is how they're experiencing the service or the application that you're providing to them. And then you have the AI ops, the CICD pieces of that help you find problems before they become a problem so that you can avert the issue and eliminate outages quicker, et cetera.
2: So, Carolyn, at the top of our conversation, you asked me, how did I get into racing? <laughs> I have to go back because it's it's a bit of a chicken and egg. So is it the allure and the sound of the motors and, and let's say the appeal of cars in general? Or was it the IT side that drew me in? And I'll let you kind of think about that because they both do go hand in hand and they are both applicable in each other's worlds.
0: Well, in this analogy, like listening to you talk, Eric, just makes me think about, how the technology in in our lives, but in the lives of our government employees, it makes them better at their jobs. It improves the efficacy of whatever technology they're using, whether they're trying to make a tank work, whether they're trying to order a bar of soap for the ship that they're on. All of this monitoring is so important just to improve our lives.
2: Absolutely. And one of the things that comes out of that is this concept of It started as BYOD, bring your own device, and now we have IoT, the Internet of Things. I hate the fact that people lump cars into that category of an appliance. it's like yeah i can ip enable my toaster and it'll tell me how hot the toaster is running and how long it toasted the bread for and it's still just toast spread but when you boil back and you peel back the onion of a vehicle whether it's a tank whether it's an airplane a ship a car any type of vehicle truck whatever it might be it's way more complicated than people realize that ecosystem is tightly packed into a small space but replicates these larger data centers that we deal with day in and day out. So it's kind of fun to peel that back. And also Mm -hmm. important to engage younger folks so they understand the STEM that's also involved in the motorsport and automotive world. Like I mentioned earlier, chemistry, physics, engineering, aerodynamics, thermodynamics. I mean, the list goes on and on of the places that you can go niche and go deep and just geek out on in the automotive world. But that also applies to what we do day in and day out, supporting our Government customers talking about APM, making these mission apps better, and dealing with the individual missions themselves. I mean, on a regular basis, I talk to folks in the Navy about how we're going to implement APM on a ship versus how they're using it at the PX, right? They're dynamically different, <laughs> but applicable in the same way.
0: Exactly. And then you've got the whole dynamic of the meat behind the steering wheel or the computer. I don't know how I like being referred to as meat. But I'm going to
2: go. <laughs> well, on Star Trek, they would have called you a bag of mostly water. So
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, that's funny.
0: This has been really fun. We're to the part of the hour, our tech talk questions. So oh. just some quick. Well,
1: well good,
2: because I've got I've got some pit stop questions for you guys. So we'll go tit for tat. All righty oh, then.
0: Well, shall we do tech talk first? And then sure pit stop? thing. All right, Eric, what do you think the next big leap in tech will be, or what do you want it to be?
2: I want some of the technology that we're used to in the data center world to find its way into the Soho world. And Soho being small office, home office, because we don't practice what we preach where we want to make things better. We want to protect ourselves. And then suddenly you hear about, oh, my data got compromised. I got to buy this Mm -hmm. thing and protect my ID and all these kinds. And it feels a little gimmicky. I've been fed the whole antivirus thing for a long time. I'd rather be able to present a box that provides a defense in depth strategy to keep us all safe at home, especially now in the last two years where more people are working from home and we've had to bring the office home with us. We don't have the same luxuries all the time that we would in in the corporate space. We're still attached to those data centers remotely through the cloud and people are monitoring this and whatnot. But it would be nice to have that security blanket, that sense of protection against the outside world by bringing some of that into the house and making it turn key. I think that's the most important part about a lot of things in our space is making them easier for everybody
1: to use. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: got to be plug and play or I'm not using it.
1: I, I want to ask you back to racing. Sure. And this may be happening. Do you see racing moving from combustible engines to electric? So we call that the EV revolution.
2: We ask people (laughs) that question a lot. And so there is already a discipline in motorsport known as Formula E that Mm -hmm. is basically Formula One cars with EV power plants. Watching them evolve in the last couple of years has been fascinating because that has been a jump in technology that's going to find its way into passenger cars. They initially started out. Having teams of drivers representing countries is kind of like the Olympics, right? Or or like international race of champions type of deal. So you had team Britain, team Italy, team Germany, and they've all got their cars and their liveries and everything. And what they would do is when they would run out of power, they would jump in another car in a way they would go. The problem with that model is it's not sustainable because each car, although created quote unquote, equally doesn't perform equally, much like applications put into an Azure environment versus an AWS environment, right? The back ends are slightly different and that kind of thing. So what they did is they went through trial and error and they, they looked at the data as well. And they said, you know what? We're going to keep the car the same, keep the drivers the same, and we'll make the battery packs switchable, and get it down to the point where we can swap them in the same amount of time as it would take to swap tires in a pit stop or do a fuel stop. So that's incredible. And that's been talked about in the EV world for passenger cars is why do I have to drive to a sheets and plug in and wait 20 minutes to charge? Why can't I go up to like a battery bank and switch
0: one out and put it in my car and keep driving? I would buy an EV vehicle today if I could do that. So it's so coming. Would you, uh, how would you feel about that though, Eric, if we got rid of like the combustion, so, what kind of engine is it?
2: <laughs> the internal combustion engine or ice engine. So the, the biggest pushback I've heard from petrol heads is that what we will lose is the sensory part of racing. One of the big things is the auditory side of this, which yeah. is the sound of a motor. If you've ever gone to an IMSA race like Rolex or Le Mans, which like we talked about just happened you can identify the different brands before you even see them. You know the sound of a Corvette over a Ferrari, over a Porsche. They're very distinct because they're very differently built. When you get an EV, what do you hear? You get this high pitched whine Nothing. from the transmission yeah. and otherwise it's air noise. So that's the biggest drawback that people have presented. Now, what I'm really curious to see is I believe it's next year. The NHRA came out this year. This is the drag race guys. This is these are the folks that go in a straight line really, really fast. They have put together an EV class. And so there's a little right. bit of want, want people going, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm excited to see it because A, I want to see what kind of data they're going to put down, but B, I want to see how it changes the dynamic of that discipline of racing.
1: I mean, if, speed is speed,
2: right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but if the fans are still tuning in and they're still going to races with the EV cars there and they haven't totally turned their backs and gotten another beer and a hot dog, then that's saying something. Mm-hmm. And I think the proof will be live when we see that happen.
0: All right. We've gone off script for the tech talk, but I do want to ask one more tech talk question and then sure. we'll let you do your pit stop. What's inspiring you in tech? which can cross over to cars. I have now learned you've schooled me sufficiently. What are you reading or watching or listening to that's inspiring
2: you? That's a twofold question because with my background, and I know we didn't dive into that too deeply. I've always been tied into cybersecurity. The big thing for me has always been SIM and threat intelligence. And now obviously APM, which they all go hand in hand. They're very close cousins. So I want to see where we go with that. I'm keeping tabs on. You know, former companies and things like that that I worked for, and some of the developments that they're doing there, especially with how they're handling zero day. And there's a lot of talk Mm -hmm. about zero trust, how we're handling IOCs that are popping up all over the place. So I'm really kind of geeking out on that. And thanks. But where do
0: you geek out? Like, what do you read? What are you following? Do they just need to follow you on LinkedIn and you'll start posting for us? Yes,
2: that would be probably the easiest All thing. right, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I spend more time reading automotive journals than I do tech stuff, I'll be honest about that. <laughs> on the other side of that, there's the whole, you know, we were all stuck at home binging Netflix and Hulu. And, you know, I stumbled across something that I found to be inspiring in a different way as a retrospective into the IT world, kind of looking back on where we came from and how we got to today. And it does tie into sports cars just a little bit and one of the main characters. So if you haven't watched AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, which is a reference to the old days when you would put a computer into an infinite loop Mm -hmm. mode, it tells the story of companies like McAfee, like Semantic, like Compaq, oh. like AOL, Yahoo, and et cetera. And it's done in this dramatization, kind of similar to Mad Men, if you appreciated that, but without yeah. some of the, the undertones that Mad Men has. This started in the late 70s, early 80s, and it goes for four seasons. And it's absolutely incredible. It's really fun to watch. And it's really fun to see where these companies came from, the birth of cybersecurity and, and things like that. So I highly recommend that if you want to geek out on something, maybe still in the realm, but you don't have to put so much attention into. It and have a lot of fun with and the acting is absolutely phenomenal
0: so. perfect see that's right up my alley i can watch it mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right all right flip the script here ask you guys a couple of our more common pit stop questions sexiest car of all time
1: mark probably the stingray corvette in the late 60s the that's convertible true. good choice Carolyn Ford
2: Mustang. Oh, what year though? There's so many different variations of the Mustang.
0: Yeah. So I like the earlier ones, not the 70 version, which was my first car, by the way. Um, I'm
2: sorry for you. A little bit
0: earlier. Hey, it was a Ford Mustang. I was happy enough.
1: Six, 64, 65, 66.
2: Whatever it takes. The Iacocca era of of Mustangs. Yes. Those are those are the good ones. None of that Pinto based stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) ugliest car of all time. Carolyn. Oh,
0: there's so many.
1: There's so uh, many.
0: I can't say.
1: I don't know. How uh, about the give Pinto? Well, the Pinto is pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. Yeah. I mean, the Gremlin. The Gremlin's pretty oh, ugly yeah, too. Oh yeah, pretty ugly. Maybe so, the Thing.
2: The, oh, the Volkswagen Thing. Yeah, the also known as the Kubelwagen, which was a German military jeep. I could yeah. nerd out on that for a while, too. But no, that those are all good answers. Very good. So one of our favorites is what we call the three-car garage and or million-dollar person question. So if you had a million bucks or more, basically unlimited funds to fill a three-car garage, what would you put in it? And maybe you guys have a combined garage if you can't
1: come up with three cars of your own. So we'll go with Mark. Well, I have an AMG now, so I like that. I would keep that probably more of a utility kind of. SUV car for the more practical things in life. And then I've always. What's your crazy poster on the wall
2: kind of car? You know, like I want to have.
1: a uh, like a, or Yeah, probably like a Porsche 911 career or something like that. Nice. Very nice. Yeah.
0: All right. So my dad rebuilt from the floorboards up a Ford 46. Oh, nice. That would be in my garage. I would have a truck because I always need one. And I would have an electric vehicle for getting around town. How boring is that?
2: What Any <laughs> any specific EV that has your attention right now? Are you a Tesla girl? Or are you a Porsche fan?
0: I mean, I don't really care as long as it's like spending a hundred grand for a car. Sorry, guys. <laughs> like, that's just not.
1: No. <laughs> oh. Big toys for big boys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, I need it to be in my price range and I need it to be reliable.
1: Well, Tesla's apparently coming out with a very affordable car soon, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean,
2: it's fine. Didn't they say that about
1: the Model 3, though?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Also, the windshield won't break. That was in the truck, and we all
2: watched (laughs) it. The the Cybertruck.
0: Yeah. My dog needs to be able to get into all of them. So it's got to be big enough for. That makes, that makes
2: sense. If you have extra time and you want to learn about all the upcoming EVs and things that are out there, tune into our monthly drive through episode where my sister happens to be our resident, let's call her EV expert, also executive producer. And she covers a lot of what's on the horizon, not just Tesla's. There's some interesting stuff hitting our shores from overseas. So if you want to nerd out on EVs, definitely check that out. But with that being said. Mark and Carolyn, I cannot thank you enough for having me on Tech Transforms for this crossover episode. You, yeah. Yes. And so, folks, for more information on Tech Transforms, if you're listening to this on the BreakFix podcast server, be sure to follow them on Twitter and LinkedIn at Tech Transforms and tune into more Tech Transforms podcast episodes where they talk to some of the most prominent influencers shaping the information technology landscape to understand how they are leveraging technology to solve complex challenges while also meeting the needs of today's modern world.
0: Thank you, Eric Mantarastelli. Is that right? (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: And tune in listeners to his Break Fix podcast for more very entertaining conversations and you can geek out on cars. Thank you listeners for joining us today. Please go out, smash that like button, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and we will talk to you next
1: week. Thank you guys.
0: Bye. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.